just past 7 o'clock, and here we go. Really excited for tonight. It's Ira on Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a massive show this evening, Ira. We got some good guests coming back. These are uh, regulars from the show, but two of the best guests that we ever have. First up is going to be uh, Mike Iavarone, and he's got... The inside scoop on what's probably one of the biggest scandals of the week. Yeah, well, he's a horse. He's a horse owner. He owned uh, Big Brown, one of the most famous horse races. Also, owns lots of other stake w- winners. And he's going to come. We just interviewed him a few minutes ago, and he's going to blast Bob Afford. And we're yeah. going to find out this Medina Spirit with the drug testing. I mean, we haven't. This is the Lance. I mean, you feel bad for the horse. The horse not like taking the drugs. <laughs> it's not. This isn't like Barry Bonds, A Rod, or, or Lance Armstrong. This is a situation where they use drugs in horse. And now the question is. What's going to happen? And I think he really answers. I had a lot of questions going into this, and he really answered a lot of them, and, and I think it's helpful for that. And you can understand why he'd be upset. Any horse owner, trainer that's not cheating in seeing Bob Baffert get caught many, many times cheating, and now to have it happen in the biggest stage, it's just not a good thing. And Mike's going to – Mike is not going to hold back here. Well, and it's and it's also, as he said, for the safety of horses. If a, if an yeah. athlete chooses to take steroids, they know the risk. They, they're deciding to make that risk. A horse doesn't – it's yeah. going to run. A horse is not making that risk itself absolutely then (laughs) charlie campbell of walterfootball.com might be the most knowledgeable draft person on the planet and we had him on three weeks ago two weeks ago did a great job and then looking back at his selections he was really pretty incredible how good he did and we're going to bring him back there's like nostradamus there (laughs) predicting the draft where everyone else was didn't know where where people were picking i i think i think it was like 15 or 16 draft choices he hit uh, out of 50 percent of the draft which is Unheard of, mm-hmm. and uh, really good analysis about what teams did, we, we, you know, those type of things. So I'm excited to have him back on. Yeah, and that'll happen not just about 7:35 here on Iron Sports. Ira, let's do just a little NFL to start this off. Aaron Rodgers, he <laughs> he managed to shake everything up just minutes before the draft. Kind of put Green Bay, um, put their backs to the wall here. Where are we at with this? Well, really, what it is is uh, now some people are saying, I, look. I think Aaron Rodgers getting some blowback from fans. His name was announced. You see a lot of Packer fans upset about this. And the Packers now are putting their side out. They're saying, look, we've flown out there five times, six times. We've tried to have communications with him. We've worked with him. We've done all these things like that. We've, we've offered him more money than any quarterback. We're, we've given him the offer. So what he's upset about Jordan Love, that's what he's upset about. The draft choice, the quarterback we drafted last year said that's what you know we're looking for, the future of the team. Clearly that was a mistake. They should have drafted him. But th- this point is... Is he? Does he? Is this a game for him to stay here or try to go somewhere? And the one team people are talking about is Denver. I just don't see. Look, you're on a team that's been to the the NFC Championship game two years in a row. They are loaded with talent. Denver, they have problems. I mean, yeah. and if they have to trade a lot to get Rodgers, they're going to have more problems. I, I don't see it. The poise. When Peyton Manning went to Denver, they were a loaded team when he went into that team. They were ready to win. Yeah. This Denver team's not ready to win. And I don't understand. Like, I, again, I would understand what Rodgers is looking for. Interesting this week, uh, Adam Scheffner was on Dan Patrick's show. And mm-hmm. he said, and he was the one who broke it for ESPN. And they said, well, what the night of the draft when you broke this, what was the incentive? Like, did something, did you hear something from anybody? He goes, no, it was just accumulation of information. And I'm like, well, did you Aaron Rodgers tell you? He goes, no. And then he goes, <laughs> did the crackers say? He goes, no. And then it's like, but he goes, are you sure Aaron didn't tell you? Because it's clear that Aaron Rodgers, I mean, it's almost like Patrick said, you're lying. Like, we know Aaron Rodgers told you this information. He's upset. <laughs> That's why you released it. It's not this accumulation you decided the night of the draft to yes, release yes. it. <laughs> and to go for that. And because it was the same thing, he was mad about the draft last year. And maybe Aaron 
Byron was hoping maybe some teams would start to try to trade for him or whatever was the thought was. I, I still think, I mean, maybe Aaron himself is conflicted. Does he want to stay? Does he want to go? Of course, he doesn't hold any of the cards. I mean, he, he can't unless he chooses not to play anymore and try to go do Jeopardy. But as I heard, he's not even going to get the Jeopardy job. So I just think it's it's really, this is, we've talked about the Deshaun Watson stories and we said Dak Prescott. This is very interesting because we're going to see, because there, there, I would say there is a chance if he decided to retire that they would trade him. And so this is an issue. And then the Packers are the, one of the top three or four teams in the NFL. And this is their star quarterback. Um, again, we're, the, my point has been what I said last week. Jordan Love is the difference. If Jordan Love was ready to play, ready to be that quarterback, the Packers would say, oh, you don't want to play anymore? We're happy. We're going to bring Jordan Love in. And same thing happened with the Steelers. When Mason Rudolph was drafted a couple years ago by the Steelers, Ben was like, this is, I'm offended. I'm so upset. This is the worst thing in the world. They get to training camp. Suddenly Ben says, so you hear, Ben's been really working with Mason. They're getting along great. Because Ben realizes <laughs> Mason's not taking my job. No and then chance. we saw last year, there was no way Mason's ever taking Ben's job. So the point is that, or two years ago, he wasn't going to take his job. But the point is, I think that Aaron Rodgers knows he's in the power position because he knows Jordan Love is not ready to take his, or probably would never take his job. No, I, I think you're right on everything you said. I, I I don't think Denver is a good landing spot. I keep hearing people say, oh, you know, Denver's got a lot of talent there. Like, Green Bay's got a lot, lot more talent if you're really trying to win. I, I don't know what's going to happen there. I, I you know, when, when the um, when the Russell Wilson thing popped up and the Deshaun Watson thing, I'm saying in the back of my head, I know they're still going to be quarterbacking their team come opening day. But I don't know if Rodgers is. I mean, I think of anybody I've seen recently, I think there's a chance that he does get moved and is not a Packer week one. Well, and also because teams like teams that feel they're close, and so maybe it's Denver or someone else, uh, he is. He was the MVP of the league last year. So yeah. the point is, they think that <laughs> if you think you want to win, and it's a win, it's a win now type league, and it's win this year and win that Super Bowl and go for it all. And if there's a chance to get Aaron Rodgers, do you think he's the difference maker of it? Then teams are going to make that move. So it's been nine years, I believe, since Tim Tebow um, was a, a member of an NFL roster. Took a little hiatus there. Tried to uh, make the Mets uh, uh, major league club. Could not do that. And he's going back to the NFL, Ira. Well, it's supposedly going to be announced next week that he's going to be a tight end for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, of course, he never played tight end. And when the Jets and the Patriots already wanted him to play tight end, he didn't no, want thanks. to play. He said no. But now with Urban Meyer, and, and I think it's a culture that Urban Meyer is bringing to Jacksonville. He wants to bring players that he coached with Ohio State, players that he coached with the Jacksonville. I think he'd be the seventh player that actually was under Urban Meyer. So, I, And clearly, he's the most famous player to ever play under Urban Meyer, <laughs> winning two national titles there in Florida. But uh, no, I'm excited. I think it'd be cool. Again, anything more exciting. We, we're so lucky in South Florida to have the Jaguars, Tampa Bay, and Miami all sort of be in the top storylines of the NFL. And it's going to be a very, it's going to be such a fun year next year. I can't wait. And right now, let's go to Mike Everone here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. We're honored to have Michael Iverone, uh, a famous horse owner on the show. Uh, Michael's been known to have uh, the owner of uh, Big Brown, who was one of the greatest horses anyone has ever seen and, and just missed winning the Triple Crown, uh, not winning the Belmont, and also a, a horse, Benny the Bull. So, Michael, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about the whole Kentucky Derby and Medina Spirit and Bob Baffert. And what was your impressions in terms of when you saw the race and saw how Medina won and ran someone, an unheralded type horse, uh, was able to pull off this upset to win? What was your feeling like right after the race? It was feeling like I was watching the replay from the year before. It's <laughs> the same kind of thing. It's, uh, I mean, this horse was a $1,000 yearling. 
and probably Baffert's sixth or seventh string. I, you know, he had a lot of injuries. He had a horse called Life is Good that I thought was by far the best of the class. So I wasn't even sure if he was going to run this horse. And then he puts him on the lead. They go fast fractions, and he gets challenged by everybody and just keeps going and going and going. Like, it's every year, it seems like. it's. It seems a little hard to believe at some point, right? Right, right, right. And I mean, I guess you're talking about Authentic the year before in terms of, of his win. Uh, you know, it's been, he's had now 30 horses uh, been disqualified for drugs for just four this year, which is, you know, you know an alt- and a record of certainly for, for, for owners and some of your trainers of horses. Um, in the industry, I mean, what have people been thinking about what, how Baffert has continued to have these victories after victories in the seventh Kentucky Derby win, et cetera? Well, for people inside the industry, it's obvious. So he wins yearly about 35%. That means every three horses he puts on the track, he wins a race. And to be a really good trainer and to be amongst the elite, if you win at 20% or more, you're a superstar. 35% is at another level, and he's just not winning with you know everyday horses. He's winning the biggest races there are. And yes, he has good bloodstock, but for a long time, people were suspicious of him. And over the last two years, it's just been blatant. He's just been put in everybody's face. And, you know, he had five positive medications this year alone. And finally, uh, you know, he's moved into the big time with, with the violations. You know, one thing is to, to commit a violation in a race where the horse world is watching. Now he committed a violation when the entire world is watching. And now he's got a problem. And the, the drug that he was accused of using, this beta-masami, um, which was double the limit. It, I was surprised because they said it was... It, it, you, there was no like it was a drug they were easily going to catch. So like it was one of those things where uh, maybe it, you know it was some undetectable drug. It was like they would catch it unless there was some sort of masking agent involved in it. What, what was the use of that drug? And you were explaining before in terms of how that drug helps horses just to run well. Okay. Well, first off, there's a misunderstanding out in the general public. They were saying that it is a legal drug uh, to a certain amount of picograms, which is ten picograms. That rule was changed last year. There's absolutely no traces of, of this drug allowed at all inside the racehorse. So the withdrawal period on this medication is 14 days. It, one picogram would have been too much, would have been a violation. 20 picograms is two times higher than the allowable amount that they used to allow in past years. So it was a significant violation two years ago. It's now a ridiculous violation because it's not even allowed to be administered. And what the medication does... It's, a, it's like a cortisone shot, and it basically is for the sole purpose of uh, cushioning the joints. And the risk of that is, as we know, when you take a cortisone shot, what's the risk? The risk is you're not feeling the joint, so you're doing more damage because you can't feel it. And when you are dealing with horses running at 40 miles an hour on small little legs that weigh 1,200 pounds, that becomes suicidal. And it's now reached the point where... You know, he is thrown out the rule book, and I feel like the disregard for the animal themselves now is, is the priority, and the, the racehorse needs to be protected from this guy. So it's different. What he was doing was it's not like what Lance Armstrong was using when in Tour de France, making his heart so he's not getting tired that way. This is actually you just won't feel pain, so you keep running like that. Right. So, so Armstrong was getting involved in EPO and things that slowed down the buildup of lactic acid and the muscles. This has nothing to do with that. This is purely where... When the horse starts feeling distressed in his joints, he's basically running on anesthesia in those joints. 
And that's very, very different. One thing is, you know, is to deal with breathing issues. Another thing is to start dealing with the joints. Because when horses break down, it's usually catastrophic to them. It's a fatal breakdown. So how a trainer can have this kind of bloodstock and use the type of medications that he's been caught using has crossed over uh, from cheating to inhumane in my eyes. I mean, one thing Bafford was, he's been on a lot of interviews today. And, and I mean, the excuses are just, you know, going out and saying, I think one where he said one of his trainers might have cut his hand and then the horse, he put his treating his hand and the horse licked the hand and some of those things. I mean, what are the chances of that, that story being even possible? Well, the best one I heard today was uh, he had another positive for something. When we talk about now we're moving into the bronchodilation side of it. He had a horse that tested positive for a legal bronchodilator. So that illegal dilator in traces can be found in cough syrup. So the story he spun on this one was his groom had COVID, was taking cough syrup. He peed in the stall where the horse was, and then the horse ate the hay in which the, ho- the, the groom peed on. And that is what created this inside the horse's system, which is like, <clears throat> I don't know where he came up with that one, but that's right out of bubblegum uh, <laughs> rapper to me. <clears throat> and then, you know, the mention about the just, the horse Justify uh, a, a few years ago, 2018, uh, was just came back later and was found in the Santa Anita Derby to, to actually be over the limit. But they, but they chose not to disqualify because Justify was already in the middle of the Triple Crown and they wouldn't go back and, and disqualify Justify. Right. So the California Horse Racing Board uh, dropped that case only because it was doing more damage to racing than it was good in their eyes. So they stood behind the fact that he tested positive for two different types of medications that are banned. By the time that these medications had to come forth, uh, the big question was, why didn't the California Racing Board bring it forward sooner than after the horse ran in the derby? And it's a great question because it should be only a couple of weeks for this medication to come back. The separation between the Santa Anita Derby and the Kentucky Derby was a month. The horse won the Kentucky Derby. This information didn't get public until after the horse already won the Triple Crown. So the irony of it all is if the horse would have tested positive and been disqualified from the Santa Anita Derby, he would not have had the eligible points to even run in the Kentucky Derby. So essentially they would have to erase the record books. And I guess racing decided, like it always does, to sweep it under the rug, it'll go away. And that's what they did. The problem with that is it's like the serial killer. You know, you you keep murdering people and getting away with it. You keep pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope. And they allowed him to do this because 17 violations is just despicable. So Medina Spirit gets, they they get the the, uh, drug test back. It's uh, it's found to be drugs in the system, and now they're saying they're testing a second, the second, the A sample and the B sample. Um, how right. long does it take to get this B sample? What's the timing? And and, and Medina Spirit <laughs> scheduled to run in the Preakness on Saturday. Right. So the B sample will never be back in time. And the irony of it all is we're in 2021, right? We could send we can send uh, you know things to Mars and fly helicopters around Mars, and you can't tell me that we can't get a split sample back faster than that. That's just ridiculous to me, but that's what they say. Um, as far as that, he's if they accept his entry, which is still a big if, I haven't seen anything yet in either direction. If they accept his entry, um, that split sample will not be back before the race. 
Um, I'm, I have heard that Baffert's lawyer says that if they do not accept the entry, that he will file an action in, in court to, to try to force them to get a stay so he can run in the race. So that will be a, a legal mess. Um, I don't know how that's going to turn out, but uh, it's, it's going to be good to watch. So if they disqualify Medina from the Kentucky Derby, then Mandalo would then become the winner. But Mandalow's not scheduled to run in the Preakness, so there would be no Triple Crown. So is there a way that Mandalo could now decide if it's declared the winner, could it start, could it run in the, how, how could Mandalo run in the Preakness on Saturday when it's not entered in the race yet? My expectations are he probably won't because they probably backed off of him a little bit after the race. So they probably took him out of heavy training for a few days just to get his feet under. So he's not going to go. Um, you know, they pushed the, the entries back to tomorrow, maybe in the hopes to try to induce the trainer. But I don't see it. And, and the facts are, I'm not even sure at this point that a triple crown under this structure is, is in the best interest of racing. Sounds strange, but I'm not sure it really is. And um, my guess is Cox won't enter the horse. Um, Baffert will enter, too. He'll get to run. He'll probably win this thing. Um, you know, I mean, it's just it's the same old story. But his other horse, you said, is, is Concert Tour, which is the one that he felt would, would, like he was almost planning to run Concert Tour in this in the first place to win the race, not thinking that Medina Spirit. I mean, I noticed when I watched the race, when Medina Spirit won, it was sort of like he wasn't jumping up and down like you'd expect. I just won the Kentucky Derby. Now, he's always won seven. Maybe it's whatever. But the point is, it's sort of like I didn't expect to win. I'm a little surprised, and I don't know if I really wanted to win this race. Well, doesn't it make you scratch your head a little bit when Baffert says, that <clears throat> concert tour is his better horse, but he's not going to run that horse in the Derby. He's going to wait for the Preakness. It just makes you wonder why. It, it doesn't make sense to me as an owner um, who has experienced that. There's a huge difference between winning the Kentucky Derby and winning the Preakness. The Preakness is amazing, but it's it's apples and oranges. So, was there a reason why concert tour was not entered in the Derby? You know, it's it's a viable question. We'll never get the answer, but it's interesting to me. Um, he never considered Medina Spirit better than the Contador at any point. And then I guess the question, I mean, one of the other comments he, when he's making excuses, I heard him today, it's like, well, I'm Bob Baffert. I've won so many races. Why would I even cheat? Why would I you know, risk my legacy for, for cheating it on a, this biggest stage? It doesn't make any sense. It has to be something else because there's no reason for me to cheat. Well, it goes back to why did Mark McGuire cheat? Why did... Uh, Sammy Sosa, they were all millionaires. They all had legacies. Um, <clears throat> and they kept trying to raise the bar and raise the bar. Baffert's already in the Hall of Fame. In my eyes, he shouldn't be. I, I, I just, I believe now that you, you have to look at his entire body of work, you know, with cross eyes. I, I, I don't believe it. And the more that I listen to him talk and the more that I hear the excuses he makes, the more as a horse owner who competes against him, I'm disturbed because effectively he's hard to beat when you're trying to do things the right way. And I have a lot of horses that run against him in California and most of the time we're going to lose. And now I have to wonder is, you know, do I want to run in, in races that I know I'm running against him? And then I hear his excuses and I don't believe any of them. They're ridiculous. Do you think other owners are going to now take a stand? I mean, is this something that he's, maybe stepped out the line so much that other owners now are going to push back and say, wait a second, this can't keep going on. You can't keep, he can't be cheating and winning. Um, and we're not going to, it's not, it's not fair anymore. I think it's way past other owners. I think it's the culture. 
if you look at what's going on right now and just surveil social media, even in the mildest surveillance, you're going to see that he doesn't have anybody that's in his corner right now. Nobody. Wow, that's great. Well, Michael, I, I know you've been busy. I, I, you had to jump on this call. I really appreciate it. Um, this is Michael Iverone, uh famous horse owner, owner, of course, Big Brown. And I tell the story all the time that I, I, my uh, cousin from Louisville flew in the morning <laughs> thinking that I was going to win in the Belmont, saying it's the best horse. I mean, he's someone who's watched horses. He goes, it's, and he still to this day says it's the best horse I've ever seen run in a race. So, uh, but again, uh, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports and, and just giving an insight to this uh, to this, I would say mess, really. That would be the, the term I would use. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have a good day, and thanks again for coming on. Great stuff there from uh, Mike Iavarone. And, and it was so good to talk to him because any analyst can say what they want. He's in the business. And I was annoyed, Ira, that I lost about 200 bucks by Mandaloon not winning. Like he said, he has to compete against this guy every week. Like, it just it ruins the integrity of the sport. I'm, I, got, I don't want to say that I'm glad that it happened on a national level, but I'm glad that it was exposed on a national level. So maybe something can be done. Yeah, one of the questions people would ask, we talked to them off the air about this. If you bet on Mandaloon, you don't get to go win no. your bet. It's over. That's how they, they do the racing. It's like finished, you're done. And, and, and it doesn't matter what happens later. So Mandaloon could be declared the winner, but if you bet on Mandaloon, you still lost. Yeah, your ticket's in the trash already. <laughs> but, you know, I was wondering, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine who's a very involved with horse racing, saying, like, I'm surprised there's not more low-level guys that dope up one of their, their horses that's not going to win, bet the farm on them at 70 to 1, 60 to 1, and walk away. Like, suspend me. I don't care. I got I won the money. And there's nothing you can do to take it back. Right. right. It's it's a shame. Ira on Sports, 723. This is the true oldies channel. So, Ira, it was uh, about 18 months since his last win. He hadn't made a cut in two months. But Rory McIlroy back in the winner's circle, winning the Wells Fargo yet again. Huge win for Rory. It's his third title there. So, he's won 19 yeah, he tournaments. Likes he likes that, that course. Um, it's the first title, of course, you said in 18 months. And here's someone who in two, 2020 was number one in the world and has not played well at all, dropped to 15th in the world. Now, winning yeah. this win, he's back to, to seven. But uh, didn't play that great at certain times. He only hit three out of 14 fairways on an 18 when he had a two-shot lead. He was lucky he didn't hit the ball in the water, and he's lucky he wasn't aggressive. His caddy came in, and that's where he <laughs> listened to your caddy and said, look, let's just take it where you're up two strokes, take the bogey on the hole, uh, take a drop, and then he two, hit right on the green and then had two-putted for the win. Uh, but it was uh, he, this is, a, this is a, a, a course that he's done well on, and it was interesting because Keith Mitchell, who we had on our show and who won the Honda, he was in the mix the whole yeah. time, uh, finished at 8-under. Abraham Answer finished at 9-under, one-stroke, uh, one end up one-stroke back. Uh, but then we had Gary Woodland, who had been playing all this. This was like the redemption tournament because Woodland has played since terrible. he won the U.S. Open for two <laughs> years ago. He's been playing terrible. And he was thinking he was going to take a few months off from golf and get his they said, hip surgery. But uh, Woodland had a great tournament and finished in fifth place at seven under. And Xander Shoffley finished at 14. Uh, Justin Thomas was just an average at tournament. Again, I'm just waiting for something to fire. I said, I think this tournament Justin's going to do great on it. It was even par. Uh, Phil Mickelson was the story, though. I mean, he shot a 64, <laughs> two-shot lead. Everyone's Phil's back, Phil's back at 51 years old. And then he ended up 75, 76, 77. It was not a, not a good a good ending for him. Uh, people that may, missed the cut, you know how I love this, talk about missing the cut. Uh, John Rom, another one of the favorites, number two in the world. You're waiting for, Dustin Johnson has not been playing well. He, no. uh, it was just 
journalist on first take or, for, or get up on ESPN and they ask him like two questions about the Masters dinner. I thought it was crazy when you have the number one golfer in the world, but he hasn't really. But the thing about Dustin Johnson is that, that Rom and Thomas haven't really taken it away from him being that number one in the world. So he, he missed the cut of shooting a, 70, a 76 and a 70. It, it is um, kind of crazy. Yeah, that he, he's been able to kind of hang out. Because there's nobody making that move. We talked about it um, for the past couple of weeks and that maybe Rory is about to turn it around. Golf is better when Rory's good. I know it's better when Tiger's good, but I think Rory's probably the number two guy that we as fans want to be playing well. Great, right. And, and the problem with Rory is he's been he's has trouble closing and, and he was down on Sunday three shots to Mitchell. Uh, and you're like, wow, this is another, he's going to shoot a 73 and be out of it. But the fact that Rory, I think it's going to be a, just a shot of confidence. He started working with Peter Cowan, a new coach. Uh, and Cowan said, look, I'm not trying to change. This is the Mona, this is Mona Lisa. I'm just like, you know, just doing a little, <laughs> fixing the frame a little bit about it. And I think that is what, but great wins got to give him confidence. Now he's going to Kiowa, the PGA Championship in two weeks where he won in 2012 by eight strokes. So he's got to give Rory a lot of confidence going to a course that, uh, that, you, uh, that you won by eight strokes uh, nine years ago, but still mm-hmm. won in one of your four uh, major championship titles. So one of the big stories from the uh, weekend was Keith Mitchell's caddy, crunchy Pete Persolja. You know, Will Zalatoris made uh, made highlights at the Masters, and they've related him to Happy Gilmore's caddy. And now this guy looks like Happy Gilmore's other caddy, the homeless <laughs> guy. So it was kind of funny. He was making the rounds on on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, and then, of course, the other big story was Bryson DeChambeau. And, oh, so Bryson, you know, on Friday, I love these tournaments because you see who's on the cut line, who's on the cut line. And Bryson finished, like, at around 1230, and he was at plus two. So he was right there, and the cut line was plus one. So he was one over the cut. And then as the day went on, the cut was plus one, and it was staying at plus one almost the whole day. But they joked that the wind was getting up, and some of the courses were going to bring things down. So maybe the cut line would move to plus two. Mm -hmm. And they were joking, Bryson's probably on the the runway with his plane, deciding whether he's one of the big names at plus two. There were were seven other golfers at plus two, but it was the idea was he was one of the names. And they were joking, well— Bryson was not on the runway. Bryson left. Bryson left the <laughs> tournament. No, you're only one stroke off the cut. He goes back to to uh, Texas, mm-hmm. and he's there. So in Charlotte, and then in the tournament to Charlotte, not when he lands, he realizes that he's now made the cut by five hours later. So then he couldn't supposedly fly back because the pilots and the, the crew had their hour time. So he had to go and leave the next morning at two in the morning. Now, this is... Re- I thought this was pathetic, and he did not get blasted by this at all. The fact is, it just shows not respect to the tournament. And then he then said, oh, well, I wanted to show respect by coming back. I could have just uh, withdrawn. I'm like, withdrawn? For what? For an injury? Because you just flew out and left the tournament? How many people, how many golfers you hear drive to tournaments? They're the eighth alternate, and they're waiting in for their chances. How many people would love to have made a cut? Have you ever heard Tiger Woods leaving a tournament early? Tiger Woods, I mean, Tiger Woods would be two shots away from the cut. He would never leave the tournament early. And then for Bryson to to do that and then say, well, it, I had to fly back at two in the morning and it's amazing that I hung out, you know, this and that. Like, we should get an award. I, <laughs> first of all, wait five hours. You have a pri- your private jet. It's not like you had to fly commercial when you had to go somewhere. He just flew. And then he was proud because I got my lift in on Friday night anyway. I mean, it is ridiculous. And I thought the golf press just gave him a pass. I thought it was, I thought for, to his sponsors, to the tournament, to the fans, you're on the cut line. Wait five hours and decide before you leave a tournament. It was 
absolutely pathetic, and I just cannot believe it. Bryce, I mean, this is a lot of things we don't like about Bryson, and this is one of the worst. And uh, just to leave a tournament when you're on the one over from the cut line. And some people said that's not a big deal because he came back and he, he actually shot well. He shot in the next rounds, his 68 and 68. But it doesn't take away the fact that you're in a tournament. I don't care if it's not a major or not. It's a tournament that Rory wins. There's millions of dollars at, at stake. Stay and see if you made the cut four more hours. The arrogance and entitledness is just <laughs> unbelievable with that one. Uh, but I, you know, you can't stand him. And uh, I'm not surprised. It's, it's not even like he's in the middle of nowhere. You're in Charlotte. Go get a beer and watch a movie and wait and see what happens. I, I don't get it. 7.30, Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. we got just about eight or nine minutes left here until we have to get to our buddy Charlie Campbell. But let's talk some hoops, I. Well, the NBA playoffs, there's like two weeks left, and I'm starting finally to like the heat. <laughs> <laughs> they have waited to the bare end of the season. Um, they're 37-31. and 31. Uh, They lost to Dallas, but then beat Minnesota. Had a huge win on Sunday to Boston. And now Boston looks like they're not going to... They just lost Jalen Brown. It was just announced yeah, with a wrist injury. News. My fantasy season has been destroyed by Jalen Brown because of his injuries. But the fact is that they are now... Hero is back, playing good. Duncan Robinson uh, is shooting lights out threes again. Drogic on the bench as a second stringer. Desmond, Iguodala, yeah, Butler, Adebayo, and Trevor Reese is playing well right now. This It's all coming again they're better late than never for them they might they're at the six they're 37 and 31 atlanta's 37 and 31 and the knicks are 38 and 30 so i'm thinking the heat might get it could this could be a, a knicks heat round one which would be very exciting and then if they win and the sixers are number one seed they play the sixers next uh yeah, it could be a little a gateway to the nba finals oh again. it's very it's gonna be and, and the one team now, Boston, I felt, I like Boston a lot. But without Jalen Brown, they have no shot. They'll probably be the play-in. Charlotte's in a play-in. And the Washington Wizards, Bradley Beal, just hurt his hamstring. If it's, but if he comes back healthy. And Russell Westbrook is having one of the best months of his career. Yeah. Triple-double every single game. They could win. Like, this is a team that if they can get, like, the eighth seed or the seventh seed, I see them upsetting. So I can see them upsetting anybody. Because if they're playing the Nets, and the Nets have two All-Stars, they have two All-Stars, they have just a good enough chance to win. So they're... They're hot. I like Washington a lot, but I really like I, if there's a way that the Sixers at the Heat can uh, beat the Knicks four or five. I mean, the Knicks played well. They just went to the Clippers. They wanted the, the Knicks are playing very, very good. They should be ecstatic getting the fourth seed, which is amazing. But I do think that the Heat are a better team. And if the Heat beat them, the Heat could beat the Six. I am not sold on the Sixers, Nets, and Bucks. Those are the three top teams in the East. I could see all of them losing in the first round. And especially to an established team like Miami, who did it last year. Yes. You know, the Knicks, I don't think you're going to go in there and beat a lot of them. But Miami is not going to surprise me at all. What's the West look like? The West is, I, I've been debating, 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 and I am now sold on the Jazz. They're 50-18. and 18. They're two games ahead of the Suns. And Donovan Mitchell hasn't played for a month. as another fantasy guy on my team who's been injured. I think he, he's supposedly going to be back next week and have play a game or two. I like how the Jazz are playing. Quinn Snyder is a genius at a coach. They are shoot. They shoot. They play defense. Uh, they're they're playing great. And the Phoenix Suns had a bad loss to the Lakers. I have to admit, and they're one of the surprise teams of the two seed. And the Clippers, horrendous game against the Knicks. Uh, Kawhi Leonard looks. He looks slow. Yeah. Paul George, they, they can't close out the end of these games. Uh, and Denver, you like Joker. Joker's going to like Joker for the Nuggets. is going to win the MVP. But without Jamal Murray, they're the fourth seed. I don't see them going anywhere. And Dallas is the fifth seed. Luka Doncic. But Persingas can't stay healthy. I don't see them going anywhere. But I like Portland. I, I Lillard, McCollum, Nursic. They have Carmelo. They have Norman Powell. I think this is Portland's year. I, between Portland and Utah, I'm just, I, I could flip a coin on those. And the Lakers. 
they finally, Anthony Davis comes back. <laughs> he had a great game yesterday against the Suns late last night, uh, healthy. But LeBron came back for a game, got re-injured again. If LeBron is not 100% healthy, I don't see. No chance. I, they have no chance at all. But the fun is that the Warriors are going to, some of the teams in the playing games, I mean, the Lakers could be in the playing game, and you could have a playing game between LeBron and Steph Curry, because Steph Curry is now having the best month of his career, averaging 35 points a game, shooting lights out. So the Warriors, you cannot count the Warriors out if they can somehow get into, into the playoffs. Let's talk uh, hockey just real quick here. Um, most of the matchups have been set. The Central Division is locked up. Carolina is going to play Nashville. I spoke with Randy Moeller of the Florida Panthers last week. He says Carolina is the team in the league to beat. They're just clicking on all cylinders right now. Florida, our Panthers are going to play the Lightning. <laughs> and oddly enough, I <clears throat> they had to play them the last two games of the season. They're playing right now, the final game of the season. So they could play nine games in a row nine ag- straight. against that Tampa. Is, you don't I've see that often. Ever, ever. <laughs> yeah, back-to-back uh, home games to end the season. And then this will decide uh, if they win tonight, they'll have home, uh, home ice advantage. Your Penguins, it's not decided yet. It's going to be the Bruins or the Islanders. They're actually playing right now. And that game is tied in the first. Um, the Penguins... It's going to be tough to beat either of those teams. This is not like a walkover division. And then they've got the Capitals to deal with as well. So I think that division is going to be really tough. The North is just bad all around with the Canadian teams. They haven't sorted it out yet. And in the West, it's really tough again. You've got uh, Vegas is at the top. They're going to play St. Louis, who won just two years ago. And then Minnesota and Colorado, both great teams that could win it all uh, in that division as well. So that and I think uh, the Panthers division is probably going to be what uh, decides the Stanley Cup champion here. At least I'm hoping for the Panthers. Let's um, let's go to baseball. I And I don't know. <laughs> What is going on in this league? We've seen four no-hitters already in, what, five weeks of baseball? It's crazy how this has gone so far, and two more this week. Well, and they're fun because my phone has this app where, first of all, I have all the baseball games that pass package, and my phone is an app, and it says, someone's in the middle of no-hitter. Now, sometimes they start, like, in the third or fourth inning, and I ignore <laughs> that. But it gets to the fifth or sixth, I'm like, oh, wow. And I've seen, so it's cool to see the end, like, see live a no-hitter, and I just pull on uh, the Reds, or I put the Orioles on this week. You had Wade Miley for the Reds against the Indians uh, through a no-hitter, and it got to see the ending of that, and then uh, the last two innings. And John Means of the Orioles against Seattle, and Means' no hitter was insane because he was the he was it was the first pitch, the first individual no hitter for the Orioles since Palmer in 1969, and he had never pitched more than seven innings in a game, which is just amazing. And the the weird thing is that it was it was the closest. Well, there was there was no one who really had a chance to, to get a hit that game. I mean, Means pitched almost perfectly, mm-hmm. and the only thing he did was threw a wild pitch. He threw the wild pitch, then the runner got on, so it was a counter strikeout. The runner got on first base, and they threw him out stealing. So he was twenty seven batters, really the wild pitch not kind of air. So it's like a first no hitter, perfect game or whatever they want to. It wasn't a perfect game, but it's the first time anyone's ever done that. Yeah. Crazy and uh, Wade Miley's no hitter. Only three balls left the infield. Like the, <laughs> I mean, I think part of this Wade Miley's not an amazing pitcher. John Means is a very good and very underrated pitcher. Happens to play for a bad team. Carlos Rodon, he's not a stud either. They're decent, but I think a lot of this has to do with the hitting is so bad, Ira. And since we're at what is it called TTO now, true total outcome, whatever, where basically every at bat you should home run, strike out, or walk. So we're just going to see stuff like this. The league's hitting 230. That's just pathetic. And I, I want to say that it's the hitter's fault that this is happening, not so much good pitching. 
Right. I mean, it's it's the whole concept is a launch angle and trying to hit the ball out and trying to hit home runs. And it's like if you went to the baseball batting cages and all you were trying to do was hit the ball as hard as you possibly can. And that's what and baseball has. That's a problem that baseball has. I mean, just like NBA with the three-point shooting, baseball is even more problem because you like the fact that baseball is exciting when there's man on first base and they're trying to steal second and there's a double moves and all this. When you see activity on the bases, everyone thinks the fans want to see home runs. I don't know. I want to see bases full of people and people running around. Man- Manufacturing runs. Manufacturing run, buying, moving people over, those type of things. That's what makes baseball so exciting. Otherwise, they should just get rid of all the other players, have the, have the pitcher pitch, and have a home run hitting contest the whole game. That would be it. <laughs> I, I heard someone joke, like, in a few years, you're going to have to explain to young kids what stealing is because they're just ne- <laughs> never going to see it. But I did see the stat. Adam Dunn is 49% for his career at TTO. He either struck out, walked, or at home run in 49% of his at-bats. That's the highest ever. Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, no, no shock there. Um, Albert Pujols is... is I don't know if he's essentially hanging it up, but he was released from St. Louis. I mean, from the, of course, at least from the Angels. And this was a, an interesting end to a career, no? I don't know if it's the end yet, but what a career. He His first 10 years of the Cardinals, he's 31 years old. He had one of the best 10-year runs. If you put Albert Pohl's first 10 years with Barry Bonds' his last 10 years, you'd have, like, what, like 1,100 home runs. Yeah. I mean, he had 444 home runs. He was almost a lock. To break every, it was by then he would have to to break Aaron's record because he was when he was at ten years ago. But the point is, it was just he he's, he has thirty two hundred fifty three thousand two hundred fifty three hits. He's only sixty away from being top ten in that. And in RBIs, he's third, but behind Ruth and Aaron. I mean, it's it's. But he had a Hall of Fame career ten years ago. He went to the Angels. They he turned down a ten year two hundred ten million dollar offer from the Cards which they are ecstatic for because it's been one of the most underperforming contracts you could imagine. I mean, here's someone who was averaging almost 40 home runs a year, goes to the Angels, is injured, doesn't play well. His last few years, he's had uh, five home runs, six home runs, 19 home runs, 23 home runs. He was someone who was like a 330. I mean, when we talk about power, he was hitting 330, 340 every plus year. Plus the power. And plus the power. And then he suddenly became like a 220, 240 hitter. Uh, it's It's... It's weird, and I just I wanted him to say, "Boy, would great if he would have just finished out his career." I'm someone who's obsessed with stats, and as in, when he was 31, you're like, "How is he not going to be the all-time home run, all-time RBI, and all almost literally all-time hits?" I mean, he was on the pace to almost have 4,000 hits too. So he could have been the greatest hitter of all time. It's a shame the injuries and the problems have come down in, in, with his Angels career. Still a first ballot Hall of Famer, and if he does never suit up again, great career uh, to Albert Pujols. Got just a minute or two here left. Let's talk some auto racing. Um, well, I loved watching in Barcelona, uh, Lewis Hamilton, his hundredth pole, and it was one of the most exciting F1 races and the ratings. I talk about, I talk about F1 and that's getting like a million people a week Crazy. on early Sunday morning watching it. But Matthew Verstappen is the guy who was challenging him. So he took, even though he was, Hamilton was a pole, Verstappen just pushed him out of the way the first lap. Hamilton's going around trying to catch him the whole time. Verstappen pits, Hamilton pits, and then he comes back out and he can't pass him. And they pitted Hamilton again to get fresher tires. And, like, that's crazy. You're, like, 30, 40 seconds down. And uh, he goes – and Hamilton later in the race goes, I think I'm losing my tires. He goes, if you're losing your tires, Verstappen's been on his tires for, like, 30, 40 more laps. He has no tires left. And Hamilton ended up passing him with five laps to go in the race, ending up winning the race for his 98th win. Uh, his Schumacher is second with 91. Vettel, it, it's 
Hamilton's the greatest driver of all time. He's the GOAT. He's everything. There's no even question about that. And now he has a lead of 95-80 on, uh, on Verstappen. And then in the uh, NASCAR race, uh, Darlington, uh, they call it the Lady in Black. I was, almost went to that. I want to go to this track. Cool it's, in, track. it's in the middle of nowhere, really. And they get two races a year, the Goodyear 400 and the Southern 500 on Labor Day weekend. And Martin Truex Jr. dominated. Now, they've had 12 races. Everybody else has won one. Now, the Truex won. He led 240 out of 293 laps. He's now third win in 12 races. And with the most exciting part of the race was so with 30 laps to go he had this huge lead, about 32 33 laps his huge lead and Carl Larson came up on him and Truex is like who's this behind me like oh my gosh and he's like and he's like and and he held Larson off for 30 laps he couldn't pass him they were going around all the lap cars it was one of the greatest driving I mean I would like to see Truex and Hamilton go against each other because he was like Larson just couldn't pass him because he was using the the lap cars to block him as he went around so next week they're at Dover uh, Delaware and uh, but it was it was it was just another good as two good two good days of two good races that day so Ira in boxing we saw a record break fight over the weekend record breaking because it was the largest crowd in inside stadium ever I mean, 75,000 people at AT&T Stadium for Canelo Alvarez versus Billy Joe Saunders for the World Super Middleweight title. Billy Joe Saunders was uh, undefeated. So this was a, a very tough match. And I love Canelo Alvarez because he's one of the top first. I think he's the best fighter in the world. And he fights all the time because we just saw him two months ago in Hard Rock Stadium. And he broke Ali Spinks record in 1978 for 63,000 people. And now Alvarez has three of the four belts. And in the eighth round, you talk about him. He's, he hit him and broke his orbital eyelid right with the last punch of the eighth round. And so when he went back to the corner, he says, this fight's over because he's not coming out. So, and he knew it. <laughs> and, uh, and Alvarez, uh, great win for Alvarez. And now we'll see, he's going to uh, fight Caleb, play it next. Uh, but Canelo's great to watch and he's a huge draw. And I like the fact that he fights. And I guess the, the, the next fight, uh, one someone's going to talk about, which is not even a fight, which is a joke really, is that Mayweather, Logan Paul on June 6th at Hard Rock and they had like a press conference for it and, and Jake Paul was knocking Mayweather's hat <laughs> off and I mean, I think Mayweather to some extent, he spends so much in these fights with McGregor, it's like he felt like he had to carry these fights and how to do it. Now these guys do all the work for him. I mean, they're the ones getting all, and, and <laughs> could you imagine, this is a joke, this Jake Paul has fought two fight, one fight his whole life and he's going against one of the greatest, the champ. Yeah, the the greatest, greatest of fighters time. of all time. I mean, Mayweather at age, he went four, late 40s, he could be late 70s and still win this fight. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> uh, real quick, tennis before we get to Charlie King. Um, just real fast is that um, they played the uh, there was a, a, the tour the Madrid Open and uh, Sasha Zarev, the person uh, player from Germany, he beat uh, Nadal uh, in in the quarterfinals. In a Sasha Zarev plays great. I mean, it's like one of these guys. It's Medvedev, Theme, Tsitsipas, and Zarev. Two, four, five, and six. They're all in their mid twenties. Which one is going to become a superstar? And Zarev, when he plays like that, has to have it. And Nadal did not look good at all um and so he sasha real easily he beat theme in the semis easily won the title and now you're going to go to the italian open this week which is one of those big tournaments that Djokovic is in the dolls in no fetter but it's gonna be exciting to watch and the french open is beginning of june but it'll be great to see if if nadal these are all clay court this is what nadal dominates on but these other players they're all good on clay except for medvedev uh and whether they're going to take this italian title which uh, nadal has won many times let's go to uh, charlie campbell here iron sports you're listening to Ira on Sports. Time to bring in Charlie Campbell of WalterFootball.com. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us again. The draft is in the books now. It was a fun one. You did very, very well at picking it like you uh, often do. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the New York Giants. I don't think any Giants fans were prepared for Kadarius Tony coming in at uh, pick number 20. And then you, you like our uh, day two and day three selections a lot. 
Yeah, I, I thought the Giants had the best draft of any team in the NFL. Uh, I, I think they just did a phenomenal job. I, in the first round, they were going to take Devontae Smith, wide receiver from Alabama, then Philadelphia uh, jumps them and gets them. But they had, it could have been a real blessing in disguise because Kadarius Toney is a phenomenal playmaker in his own right. Uh, obviously he doesn't have the thin build concerns that Devontae Smith does. But then when you add in that you got the Bears 2022 first-round pick, uh, that could be pure gold. I mean, it's very easily probably is going to be top 20 uh, and could be as high as top 10. Uh, so that pick could just be uh, such a boon for the franchise that's building around some uh, young quarterback. So uh, definitely, I think they had a great first day. Then they followed it up on day two. Uh, Aziz Ojolari is a really nice scheme fit as a uh, edge rusher in their defense. And then in the third round, Aaron Robinson from UCF was an absolute steal. One of the best man cover corners in the draft, fast, fluid, tall, athletic. Uh, his only issues that cause him to slide is just some problems in zone coverage, kind of paralysis by analysis uh, when he has to read too much. But if you want to play man coverage, this guy can do it. And I think the zone coverage will develop with NFL coaching. So uh, the Giants really just hit it out of the park, I think. Love to hear that from Charlie Campbell. <laughs> what do you got, on? <laughs> well, Charlie, you really, you've been known to to hit so much on these drafts. And for one through eight, you were, you're right on with Lance going to San Francisco. Uh, you got the chase to Cincinnati, uh, Waddle to the Finns, and then saw Sewell dropping, dropping to the Lions and Horn to Carolina. But I guess the one point where it started deviated was you felt that Fields was going to go to Denver, and I think a lot of other people, but Denver surprised everybody in picking the, uh, the cornerback Patrick Sertain, Sertain from Alabama. Yeah, and that, I think, really stemmed from the Aaron Rodgers report that came out the day of the draft, and uh, supposedly Denver is in on trying to make a trade for him. Uh, And so I think that that kind of deterred them from uh, taking a quarterback there at number nine, which I think was a big mistake on their part. But I think that's what led to them uh, deciding to take certain and then uh, and not draft a quarterback, but uh, that was really the kind of last minute shakeup to this year's draft class that really uh, no one saw coming even days earlier. And then, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, we've always had this person in mind. But then Dallas, do you think that Dallas was looking to take Sertan and then decided when he was gone at nine, that's why they moved back uh, two spots and then picked Micah Parsons, uh, the linebacker from Penn State? Well, I think Sertan was definitely their their top choice. But I think they, along with any team that's picking in that range of the draft, prepares themselves and that their guy could get snatched out from under them someone could trade up and uh it's maybe not plan a but it's now plan b but they're still getting a player that they really like there in parsons so i think that was kind of the view for dallas well uh you know we can we can with certain off the board we can trade down uh get some more ammo and we know uh parsons will be there for us at 12. And then you had Chicago at 20 taking um, Mac Jones, but then they saw an opportunity, were able to move up to 11, and they took Justin Fields instead. Uh, do you saw that it was like what it was sort of like they were the advantage, the chance was there to get Fields, and that's who they wanted, and they were able, they were able to get a draft partner to be able to move up. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that was just a, a stroke of great luck and a smart move by the Bears because uh, I think that if Ryan Pace learned from 2017 you know, when he took Mitch Trubisky instead of Pat Mahomes uh, and Deshaun Watson, and then you see the Chiefs move up to get Mahomes and the Texans move up to get Watson – those two guys have been tremendous. Mahomes already has won a Super Bowl. Trubisky was a bust. Uh, and a lot of the criticism for Fields were the same criticism get, uh, levied on Deshaun Watson, which is why he split out of the top 10 and went 12th overall. So uh, if they coach him up and, and give him some support, I think this could end up being a, a really monumental draft for the Bears franchise. And I looked at your summary on Walter.com uh, it, about Rashawn Slater going to the Chargers because everybody's saying, oh, the Chargers, they were so lucky. They got the offensive lineman from Northwestern. He's going to be there for 20 years. It's the greatest thing. And you weren't so high on him, and you felt you're like the one person out there that said, I don't know if this was the, the best offensive lineman they could have taken at 13. Yeah, well, Elijah Vera Tucker from USC went one pick later. And I know from talking to teams, a lot of teams felt that they think Vera Tucker could potentially play left tackle in the NFL. Some teams were skeptical on Rashawn Slater being a left tackle, hence they had him graded late one. Uh, Some teams had him graded in the second round because they had him as a guard or center for the NFL. At six foot three, three hundred pounds, there are very few left tackles in the NFL uh, that size. You have like Isaiah Wynn with the Patriots, uh, Kelvin Beecham, who's been a journeyman, um, and so it's just he's really going to buck the norm if he sticks that left tackle. I think he could be a really good guard or center, but I think the lack of length and at that weight, he's going to have some problems with the longer and physical edge rushers, say guys like Bradley Chubb, who's in his division, uh, for example. Uh, so I, I think that that's gonna, a bit of a risky pick because you took a player that's extremely undersized and he just skipped a season. So that's a lost year of development for reps, uh, honing in technique, getting stronger, improving so to me, that was that was a riskier pick. But I know the media really loved Slater, uh, so I'm not surprised that you know the Chargers are getting a lot of praise for that. And Charlie, you were just on fire, and even later in the in the rounds, you uh, had 16 and 17. Zach Collins going to Arizona. The Raiders got Leatherwood from Alabama. The offensive lineman. Not, I mean, you were one of the few people that had that prediction. But the one I liked was that you were strong on the Steelers getting Najee Harris at 24, and they end up getting him at 24, and they got criticized. Oh, you don't draft running backs. You don't draft running backs that early or in the first round per se. But uh, you had them taking. Uh, you were pretty happy with Harris going to the Steelers. Yeah, and I had the Jaguars taking Travis Etienne as well. I had them taking him at 33 uh, instead of 25 where he went. But at any rate, I mean, for the, for I like those picks in different regards. For the Steelers, they're in win-now mode with Big Ben. And there's no, no position that can really hit the ground running in the NFL week one out of the gate the way a running back can. So... I think with the way their running game struggled last year, Harris is a plug-and-play upgrade for them. Uh, In a team in win-now mode, a a running back that can really charge up that offense and the ground game there, that has a big impact on wins and losses. So 
I don't have as big a problem with taking him there. And for the Jags with ETN, you know, I think off the field, there's a lot of benefit to that that you might not see with uh, Trevor Lawrence making the transition to the NFL, giving him a player, a guy that he's close with, uh, that they can help each other out in that transition and moving into a new locker room. Sometimes NFL locker rooms, uh, can be tough on the golden boy franchise savior kind of quarterback. Uh, so I think having ETN there is a great move for the Jags in that regard. And also he's such a weapon as a check down receiver that Lawrence knows also well. Uh, so I just think that that pick makes sense to helping out uh, the investment in that first overall pick with Trevor Lawrence. And that's the same thing that the Bengals did with Chase uh, Tafer uh, uh, Burrow in terms of bringing his wide receiver from two years ago there. Same thing, familiarity. Instead of going with the offensive lineman, they went with somebody who he played at least uh, a whole season with and had a lot of success with. Yeah, and they were able to get some offensive line help on day two. There was quality depth there. They signed Riley Rice uh, in free agency. They got a veteran tackle as well. So, you know, the the opportunity to get more offensive line help will be there for the Bengals in the years to come. But you won't be able to get Joe Burrow's number one receiver from college uh, next year. You know, that was a one-shot kind of deal there. So, uh, and giving him that kind of long-term number one to replace AJ Green, uh, I don't. I'm not critical of that. I think Chase is a good receiver. Maybe Sewell would have been a better pick because I think he's a slightly better player. But I think really you can't go wrong between the two. Uh, and you make that move, maybe helps uh, make your quarterback a little happier, and then you just target more offensive line help here. Uh, in 2022 and years to come. And then similar to that is when Jalen Waddle goes to the Dolphins, um, certainly the wide receiver for Tua uh, two years ago in my in uh, in Alabama. But uh, so I, you seem, when I looked at the report, you seemed happy with the Dolphins draft board down here at West Palm Beach. So you, you were pleased with Waddle, Phillips. And, and tell us a little maybe some about the second rounders they actually got. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought the Dolphins really did well in the first round there. Waddle is a special player. He's a rare prospect uh, with his speed and explosiveness, what he can do after the catch, uh, how he really stretches defenses vertically. I think with him and Will Fuller, the Dolphins offense has just gotten so much faster and more explosive. uh, And that's really going to help open things up in the ground game uh, when they get that going as well. So I thought that was a good pick. I thought Jalen Phillips was phenomenal at 18. Uh, He was the best edge rusher in this draft class. I think if he had gone back to Miami, had one more good year, he would have been a surefire top 10 pick in 2022. Um, But I think also from the off the field concerns about the depression and issues that led to him leaving UCLA, it's great that he stays in Miami. So he has that same support system and habits uh, in place that led him to be really successful on the field last year for Miami uh, Hurricane. So I think that's a great pick. And then on the second day, you know, getting some offensive line help, uh, safety help, those were needs. Uh, so I, I felt they did a nice job of addressing those with quality players. Um, and, and I think Miami had another strong draft class and they, 
use their great positioning uh, from the Laramie Tunsil trade once again uh, to build up more draft capital for future years here. So uh, I think they're doing a nice job of really building that roster and adding talent at a variety of places. Now, who do you think in terms of the draft and dropping? I, I know that Jeremy Asuo Kamara from Notre Dame, uh, the linebacker, you had him going earlier. He seemed dropped out of the first round. Anyone, you know, what was the reason for that drop? And some other ones that you were surprised at uh, in terms of, like, maybe they should have gone a little earlier? Well, yeah, Asuo Kamara, uh, I mean, there. I guess there are some concerns medically. I didn't hear that from some teams. Uh, maybe there were some out there, but I did hear some teams concerned about his ability to hold up in the NFL, and I can completely understand that. I was kind of hesitant uh, to project him as a first-rounder when I first started watching him because he's only 6'1", 220, which isn't much bigger than a, or than similar to many safeties in the NFL. So playing linebacker, uh, against bigger offensive linemen, I can see where there's some trepidation there. Um, but, yeah, so he ends up sliding uh, further than expected. I had the Browns taking him in the first, and they got him in the second. So that's a, a – or I'm sorry, I had the Browns taking a, a linebacker in the first uh, in Jamin Davis, and they ended up getting a Wosu Kamora in the second round, which I think is really good value for Cleveland. Uh, so – uh, definitely, he was one of them. As we said before, Aaron Robinson with the Giants, that was a surprising slide. Uh, Tevin Jenkins, the right tackle from Oklahoma State, sliding uh, well into the second round was a bit of a surprise, and the Bears snatched him up. And Tyson Campbell, the cornerback from Georgia, many expected him to go in the first round, and then he ends up going uh, with the opening pick on, on Friday night. So. Uh, that's a quality value there for the Jags as well because uh, a lot of teams thought he would be gone in the late of a back half portion of the first round. And what was your biggest surprise in terms of someone getting drafted a little earlier than what uh, the chatter out there was that and what what you thought was going to happen? Well, Peyton Turner, the defensive end from Houston, uh, days before the draft, I had written uh, in our rumors that we were hearing he was rising. Uh, late riser uh, and that teams thought he would go in the second round and wouldn't get out of the second round but then the Saints took him uh, in the first round which was a shock I do know the Saints tried to trade into the top 10 they wanted J.C. Horn Uh, they also supposedly wanted Greg Newsome the cornerback from Northwestern who the Browns took so I think when the corners they really liked were gone uh, the Saints kind of <clears throat> maybe reached a little and overdrafted Turner. He's big, strong, um, but has some limitations for going against big offensive linemen. He beat up on weak competition, uh, is raw, needs development. So a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses and developmental issues as Marcus Davenport, who's been a disappointment for the Saints so thus far, but uh, evidently they like that kind of player because <laughs> they just took another one in the first round. 
And you mentioned, we talked a little bit earlier about Aaron Rodgers and, of course, the big story of the day. And I don't remember how, which, how you had graded Jordan Love because that's one of the things that I've been thinking of is that if, if Jordan Love was the next, next Patrick Mahomes, the Packers would not be so concerned that Aaron Rodgers saying he doesn't want to play here. They probably would just trade him whenever. But the fact is no one has seen Jordan Love throw a football in two years except for Aaron Rodgers. And probably Aaron Rodgers has said, look, he's not so special or something, or else he wouldn't be making the noise that he's making right now, especially if he wants to stay in a Green Bay. So what was your opinion coming out? I guess if you've heard anything later, but also your opinion of Jordan Love coming out of Utah State uh, last year. I wasn't a big Jordan Love fan. I thought he was raw, needed development, had a quality skill set, but uh, just in terms of field vision and accuracy, uh, I thought he needed a lot of work. Uh, and I, I, I didn't feel that his final season at Utah State, that the tape was very impressive. So I didn't see him as a first-round pick. And I thought for Green Bay, when they took him, it was one of the worst picks in draft history, in my opinion. Because uh, in the one and of so the did Aaron Rodgers, he felt the same thing. So. Yeah, I mean, you're in win now mode with an elite quarterback who's aging, and you could have, you know, last year they're in the NFC Championship game. They could have had a first round pick that would have helped them to cover. Uh, the Bucks receivers or an offensive lineman to help protect Rodgers, but instead they got a guy riding the pine. And so it just did nothing for them in terms of winning a Super Bowl uh, right now with their quarterback who's going to the Hall of Fame uh, while he's still playing at a high level. You did nothing to help him. So I hated it from that perspective. But what I also hated was they're doing a one foot in, one foot out. And that really doesn't work that well because one of the great advantages in the NFL is having your starting quarterback on a rookie contract. That's why the Jets traded Sam Darnold and reset their contract situation there. Those rookie contracts are cheap. So if you have your starting quarterback on that five-year deal, it lets you spend you know, lavishly elsewhere on the roster. We've seen the Browns do it. We've seen the Bills do it. The Chiefs did it with Mahomes, led to a Super Bowl. Uh, it just, it's a great advantage. But when you're paying Aaron Rodgers 30-some million a year and you have the cheap, you're using cheap years for Jordan Love, you're just, it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to move on uh, and you really believe in Jordan Love, then I think you, you take him and you trade Aaron Rodgers. But uh, – uh, if you you know want to win now with Rodgers, then I don't think you take Jordan Love. I think they just they have one foot in the door and one foot out. They couldn't make their mind up. It was a bad pick. I think they should have tried to trade Jordan Love and extend Rodgers uh, this in this draft. Uh, and right now, that's what I would do. I'd admit the mistake if I was Green Bay. But uh, you know, they obviously feel differently about Jordan Love. So. Uh, they're now in a really difficult position with Rodgers, their fans, uh, and really their whole locker room. <laughs> 
I've been talking to Charlie Campbell of Walter Football, definitely one of the best draft reports uh, out there, if the best draft report out there. Um, one last question before you go. I know, thank you for coming on, is the 2022 draft. I know that's a, a year away, but I looked at If you go on WalterFootball.com, you get to see what you're talking about. And I love college football, so I use your reports for even looking at 2022 and 2023 to see what players, when I'm a big, you know, when you're watching a college football game, which players are draft, you know, potential, even if I, if I don't really care what team's playing, I like to look at some of those players. Um, what are the quarterbacks next year that we should be watching uh, in the 2022 college football season? Well, I think Tyler Shue from Oregon probably would be the top one in terms of skill set and ability. Um, then after him, I think uh, check out Sam Howell from North Carolina. Uh, might not have a first-round skill set. We'll see uh, as we get further into it. Uh, maybe he does. Maybe he's like Mac Jones kind of caliber. Uh, Matt Coral uh, from um, uh, Old Miss. Really, yeah, he really came on last year. It'll be interesting to see what he does. Uh, you know, developing under Lane Kiffin, uh, who's a good offensive mind. So uh, I'm really interested in seeing how he plays this season. So those would be some of the top guys uh, to watch going in. Uh, but next year doesn't look as strong just at this point. But you never know. There could be some Joe Burrow guys out there that uh, everyone right now isn't even considering, and they come out of nowhere uh, to become the number one overall pick. And I, it, it's not just Joe Burrow. Kyler Murray was the same way. Everyone thought he was going to be playing pro baseball, first-round pick by the A's, uh, thought he'd play one year of college football, and then – move on to his baseball career, but he ends up uh, becoming the number one overall pick to the Cardinals and a franchise quarterback. So uh, you never know. It's, it's great to see the process evolve. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so I can't wait for college football to get started. It feels like it's been a long time already, and we still have a few more months to go. Charlie, <laughs> well, let's get, just get your engines recharged. The football's going to start, but I really appreciate you uh, coming on. And uh, we, uh, two weeks before the draft, you gave some great previews, and now to come out two weeks after and do this recap, I really appreciate it. I suggest everybody go on WalterFootball.com. It is one of the best sites out there, if not the best site out there, for the draft. So thank you again, Charlie, for coming on Iron Sports. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you guys. Always great to catch up with Charlie. He is just the best when it comes to this stuff. It's great that we're, we're tied in with him, Ira. Uh, we're out of time. What, what are you doing this week? I liked what he said about Aaron Rodgers. A yeah. Great analysis, Jordan Love, and those things. Oh, I'm excited Thursday. I'm go- The Sixers play the Heat. Uh, this is going to be a great game. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to go down there uh, to Miami for, the, for one of these games. It's the last regular season game, so... Uh, I just feel like this, this this could be another run for the Heat. And the last couple games this last week, they finally got their act together. And the Sixers are the number one seed in the East. So we'll see what happens. I'm hoping that you are right on that. But we are out of time. I want to thank Mike Everone, Charlie Campbell, for stopping by. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.